0: Welcome everybody to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast, where we are practicing the art of kindness and civil discourse and authenticity and storytelling. United Voice Oklahoma is a podcast about the power of healthy dialogues on race relations. Every episode will help you identify common obstacles to the healthy conversations and give you the confidence you need to invest in an authentic relationship with others outside of your race, Comfort Zone. Welcome, everyone. I am one of your hosts, C.C. Jones Davis.
1: And I am Waylon Cubitt, and we are so thankful that you are here listening with us today. Whether you are out mowing the yard, whether you are out driving the kids to school, whatever you're doing today, uh, stop and pay attention and listen to these great conversations. And we're so excited that you're listening to us today. Have conversations and share stories on difficult topics and opinions that are very often very very strong our hope is to provide meaningful content for every episode to our listeners please share this podcast with your friends your families and if you find any of this slightly slightly helpful we'd ask that uh you share it with everyone you know and be sure to go back and listen to some of our past episodes episode one kind of sets up exactly who we are and Mm -hmm and has a conversation with Clarence Seal who helped create United Voice Oklahoma. And so we're so excited that you have joined us today, but we're ready to dive in, Cece.
0: Yes, we are. And today we are so honored to have a very special guest with us. None other than Ayana, Najuma,
1: yay yay and the crowd goes <laughs> wild
0: right ayana is a renaissance woman a true visionary and has accepted the responsibility of manifesting ideas that allow people from every walk of life to determine their own destiny by using their talents skills and resources to make a difference in the world to, to enhance the quality of their lives um, i know Ayana because uh, she is an amazing um, community activist, and she has a tremendous background in all of that that I'm going to le- allow her to kind of tell us about, but uh, Ayana, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting, and congratulations on launching a uh, important communications vehicle to empower the community.
0: Awesome, awesome. Uh, Ayanna, tell us just just to get started. Um, tell us just the foundation. <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, a little bit about your family. Let's start there.
2: I am a Oklahoman. I grew up right here in Oklahoma City. Um, went to Douglas High School, went to Edwards Elementary, uh, grew up in Carverdale, which was a small community that was developed back in the 50s when the soldiers came back from the war. So my dad and my mom are both from Oklahoma. Um, I come from a family, a working-class family. My uh, parents were not necessarily uh, uh, academically educated, but very well read and very well versed on what was going on in the world. I also come from a family of activists. My grandfather was part of the Pullman Porter movement. And so I'm excited about coming from that lineage of of people. Um, I do consider myself, I guess, a Renaissance woman. Um, I have a variety of interests in everything from art and music to literature to Empowering others and uh, and speaking and helping people to find their own voice.
0: Yeah. Tell, tell me, because I'm not familiar, about the Pullman-Porter movement.
2: The Pullman-Porter movement was a movement that uh, was centered around people on the railroad. and you remember, everything was segregated uh, back in the, uh, the 40s and 50s. And the Pullman Porters were the guys that worked on the train. Mm-hmm. And so the, inequi- the equi- any inequalities of life were front and center as it related to what they were doing. And so there were a group of men and women were not working on the train at that particular time that decided they wanted to make some changes around the Pullman Porter movement. So that uh, took us to the place of where we find ourselves with Amtrak today and um, many other railroad companies that created the equity around uh, employment for the gentleman that worked on the train
0: that's amazing
1: well when we when we look you up or when anybody types your name into google one thing really pops up now a lot of things pop up but one thing really pops up and i didn't realize that this weekend or next week we move into the 61st year anniversary of the cat In. and so uh, you have to talk about that a lot. And we're not going to let you get away today without talking a little bit about that and kind of setting that up. And these memories must come to 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 your mind every year about this time. So catch us up a little bit on how how that all came. About. Interestingly enough, um You know, I grew up
2: during the 50s. Uh, I was a part of the sit-in movement. I was one of the original sit-iners, set in uh, from the time I was 7 years old until 14. But it wasn't really front and center in my life until I moved back here to Oklahoma. No, I lived in Washington, D.C. for 40 years, and I did a lot of uh, advocacy and activist work, but I never talked about my background. Uh, in some places where you live, you've got people doing so many amazing things that to mention where you come from is not necessarily necessarily as significant as what you're doing today. And so once I got back to Oklahoma almost seven years ago, people started saying, "Ah, oh, you were that little girl that's sitting at the lunch counter." There's a picture of me that um, shows me sitting at the lunch counter at Cash Drug Store, and people have used that picture for many, 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 many things. Believe it or not, but uh, people started associating me with that particular picture um in 08 julia clifford who is the daughter of bill clifford and bill clifford's like my adopted dad now uh, started asking the question why is it no one knew about the sit-in movement in oklahoma and i want your listeners to, to know one thing that we sat in here in oklahoma city two years before greensboro north carolina
1: right it was uh, <clears throat> it was First, it was first. Like people people would-
2: thought that Greensboro was a cat's meow, and even when I called uh-huh. down to Greensboro at one point, they have a museum there and they have a chronology of uh, activities that were associated with the civil rights movement. Oklahoma City was not even on the list.
1: Right, so okay. and the mother of our list was Claire Looper, Miss Claire Looper.
0: So, but before you before you talk about her, let's go back just a little bit um, because I I don't know and this is sad, a whole, whole lot about the sit-ins and how they came to be, and I'm, maybe some of our listeners didn't. So can you, we go back just a little bit to how how what the sit-ins were and how they came to be? Okay. And then talk
2: about Miss. What Lufthansa. happened was there was an NAACP Youth Council here in Oklahoma City that was very active, and um, there was also an adult chapter as well. Uh, Mrs. Looper, who was the advisor, Clara Looper, who was the advisor of the NAACP Youth Council, who was also a history teacher, highly respected here in Oklahoma City, was um, taking the leadership in terms of a sponsor for the for the children. My relationship in getting involved in the NAACP Youth Council was the fact that my mother, Mary Shaw Pogue, and Mrs. Looper were best friends. They were like sisters. My sister was five years old, and I was seven years old, and we used to go to NAACP Youth Council meetings uh, every Monday night. She had decided, me and Mrs. Looper had decided to write a play called Brother President, and in doing so, she casted a lot of the children that were part of the NAACP Youth Council, and many of whom also were her students at Dungy High School. Uh, I was in the play, and she was invited to bring the play to New York City. Initially, the invitation included just bring a few of the children that are in the play, uh, cast members, that we didn't want to bring the entire cast. But anyone that knew Mrs. Looper knew that she would not just take some kids and leave the others at home. And so she convinced the uh, host that the entire cast needed to come to New York City. And we were so excited because we'd never gone to New York City before. But she chartered a bus and we took the northern route to New York City to present the play. And going the northern route, you saw no inequities in life, no inequality. We were able to go to restrooms where you did not see the colored and the white sign. We were able to sit in restaurants where you were not segregated in terms of being even able to come into the restaurant. But being able to stay in the restaurant and have a meal. And when we arrived in New York, uh, we checked in a hotel, and there were no hotels, as many of you who know about the Green Book and about the South, that you could even stay in a hotel, but in New York City, you could. Mm-hmm. So we checked into the hotel, and we were able to have rooms right next to white people in the hotel, and we were able to experience everything that most people in life that lived in the North could experience. And we presented the play and the play was greatly received. People loved it.
1: You actually did the play.
2: We did the play okay. in New York, had a blast in New York. And it was an eye opening experience just being in the north. Yeah. Because everything that we had seen here in Oklahoma was this, was segregated. Colored and white signs in the bus station, colored and white, uh, water fountains, colored and white restrooms. It was all segregated. So when you go to some place you've never been and people treat you with respect and dignity, it's an eye opening experience. And that was the beginning of the uh, journey for me. When we got back on the bus to come back to Oklahoma. We started to see all the things that we had seen here in Oklahoma. As they would say, the, uh, the inequities of society raised their ugly heads.
1: So you came back a different route. We came, came back, back on to the southern, south. To the south. Okay. Yeah.
2: And so we started seeing all the things that we'd seen here. So we got back. The kids were very excited about what we'd seen and experienced in New York. For about a year and a half, we had some conversations with the adults about wanting to do something. And the adults had conversations with the city fathers, as it were, here in Oklahoma City. The city council people, the commissioners, the mayor, uh, other business people about trying to change the complexion, as it were, if we want to use that word, of Oklahoma's uh I, would, I won't even use the word racism at this particular time. We're talking about a public accommodations and being able to be able to do same things that white folks did. That went on for a year and a half, and we were getting nowhere. Uh, the city fathers were saying that the business owners had the Uh, responsibility and the uh, opportunity to do whatever they wanted to do with their own restaurants, whether it was um, a deli or whether it was a sit-down fine dining restaurant, but that was their decision and that the city fathers could not change that for them because they were uh, business owners. But finally, after a year and a half, uh, the kids were still meeting and um, Marilyn Luper Hildreth, who was Clara's daughter brought the discussion up. as Why can't we make some change? Why can't we do something? And so going to NAACP Youth Council meetings, we started to have that conversation about how to make change. And at that particular time, Marilyn said, well, why can't we have a sit-in? Why can't we do something that shows that we want change here in Oklahoma City? And the children went to Mrs. Looper and said, we'd like to make something happen. And she said, well, what do you want to make happen? And she and the children said, we want to sit in. Mm-hmm. And then we began to tell her exactly how we wanted that to look and the beauty of that experience is that it was uh, Mrs. uh, Lillian Oliver, my mother, uh, Mrs. Nancy Davis, there were just a whole host of adults that were um, advisors to the youth council and they were listening and they were taking notes as to what we wanted to do and how to do it. So the next step was being able to figure out how that could look, where we're gonna get the the biggest bang for the buck and where we'll get the result that we need, which was to make change here in Oklahoma. And so the first step was to look at the nonviolent component. And that was Dr. Margaret the King Jr. And then of course, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, And we started to study their philosophies and we started to figure out how a sit-in movement could be where, The children were being taught the right way, where people would take us seriously. And that was step one. I call it a boot camp, going through learning about their philosophies. And then when we finally decided.
1: Let let me ask about the boot camp. Okay. Because I'm curious about the training of a uh, (laughs) seven-year-old and planning to go and do something like this. For the first time, you didn't know how it was going to be set. So Miss Looper and other adults uh, kind of got those kids together and, they, and you went to someone's house every week All, or what?
2: In, initially, a lot of times we'd have NAACP youth council meetings at her house. Uh, but then at a, a later date, as years passed, we started, we had a building that we'd be able to go to that was open. The, the numbers got larger and larger. Needless to say, the first time we did it, there were 13 of us that
1: sat at Catch Drugstore. So you, so there were, she, she would actually say, we haven't picked a place, but we're going to do this and this is how we're going to do it.
2: Catch Drugstore, you know, as I look back on it, uh Catch Drugstore was a uh, lunch counter in downtown Oklahoma City and people just went there all the time to do their shopping, but they never were able to sit down and have a meal. It was always a carryout, go around in the back on the curb and have a seat and your and parents have something. and
1: everybody went there.
2: Everybody was spending money at catch drugstore. <laughs> right, you right. know, money is green, so right. they were definitely taking it. But the boot camp consisted of how do you respond under certain type of conditions. And so if someone spat on you, if someone said something to you that was uh, unkind or disrespectful, how did you respond to that? So we went through a variety of exercises of knowing how to act in a certain environment. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that... uh, as they used to, hey, we had church clothes on. People don't dress so formally now in society, but we had our little church clothes on, and we went down uh, to catch drugstore and continue to do that. I sat in from the time I was seven to fourteen.
1: Okay, so tell me about the boot camp. Was so it camp, one week? Was it one oh, week or two weeks? How no, long? There,
2: there was no time limit on it. But every time there were a new group of children coming into the process, we refreshed you just the boot started camp all over. Yeah, yeah okay. well, not uh, it was a refresher course, and of course you got. I was my sister was five. And I was seven, so we were the, some of the youngest. So, for over the years, I was able to see the transition between a little kid being able to sit at Cash Drug Store into going to Animod's and a bunch of other restaurants around town.
1: So, a so how long do you think? I mean, maybe you don't remember, but how long from the time. Uh, the boot camp sort of training started to the time you actually showed up in 1958 at the, well, the lunch county?
2: Well, it wasn't a long period of time because one day we decided we were going to go down to to Kat's Drug Drugstore and there were 13 kids. And we went down there without much... Uh, I won't say it wasn't much planning. It was definitely much planning because we had to have the adults to drive us there. We were we were already reversed on how to act if certain things happened. We also knew what our ultimate goal was, and so the other thing that we were taught that was interesting uh, was the fact that we realized that people, you know, change is a difficult thing. Right. It takes many, many years. And so the idea of uh, public accommodations being segregated takes us back to when we got off the ship during the Middle Passage, when you really think about it, okay. uh, how people are treated and people are, are not very easy to change their mindset. It's, and, and so that well, process, we sat there at the lunch counter. Uh, people said nasty things to us.
1: So that's interesting. So here's another question. You don't get this very much, I'm sure. But I've I, I heard add, it off. I've got to ask. <laughs> was there some parents that go you know just leave well enough alone my kid yeah. is not going to do that and and did some of your friends that were coming into the to the boot camps didn't show up for the the, the, the counter. counter. Was, no,
2: no. Most of, most of the children that came to the boot camp were the children that continued to sit in. No parents revolted and said, "No, no we're
1: not going to." No, do that. but
2: there were a lot of children that wanted to get involved in the sit-in movement, and their parents said, "No." That's they exactly, thought that yeah. it was too dangerous. That they and, and there were a variety of reasons. Like one, they thought it was too dangerous. Uh, secondly, uh, some of the parents thought that they were jeopardizing their jobs. Uh, back during the fifties, you had a lot of people that were working for rich white folks. Uh, in Nichols Hills and other uh, communities around Oklahoma City, wealthy uh, Heritage Hills and, and those kind of things. And so people were concerned about losing a job. You it, you didn't have a lot of professional folks that were like doctors, lawyers, and you know teachers even. So people that were doing service jobs had to be concerned about their welfare and being able to provide for their families. So, uh, so there this was wasn't some, just
1: courage on the kids. This was a big on statement on courage really? on and, the and, and,
2: and, and interestingly enough, you will hear some of the other that were teenagers that would say, uh, I, "I never." There the are numerous other would say, "You know, Mama went off to work. We got up, got our clothes on." Barbara Posey Jones, as a matter of fact, she she always says that. You know, we got up, got got dressed, got our clothes on, and we went on down there. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> uh, because they were teenagers and their parents didn't necessarily monitor them like you know I right. was being monitored as a little kid. So those are the kind of things that happened over seven years of of of. Uh, Being a part of change. I got a
0: question I need to understand. And I want our audience to understand, like, start from the moment you stepped your foot into cats. What was that like? What happened? What did people say to you? How did it feel? Give me. I
2: need to blow. You know, I always use the. um, Reference to the boot camp. It's like going into the military and and Lieutenant Cupid, Cupid, you, you know, have trained many officers. You would never send an officer out and not be trained in the street, whether it's just how to deal with citizens or how to deal with violence or a long list of things. And so we were prepared for that in terms of what could possibly happen. But as you get the question you're asking, it's not until it's happening that you really kind of embrace it. Strangely enough. Uh, even at seven years old, I never felt afraid. I, I I don't know whether I was a different kind of kid, you know, at that particular time in my life, but we knew that people were gonna say nasty things to us. We knew that people may spit on us. We knew that the waitress was not gonna be nice to us. We knew that the general manager of the of the catch drugstore was gonna ask us to leave, which he did many times. You know, and, and they would say, Well, Clara, you know you're not supposed to have these kids down here. You know you're not supposed to be sitting at this counter and so people that were in there you know, white folks, men and women, were saying horrible things to us. And even some of the parents would say things to us, even with their children, right there with them. And so someone saying no to us was not shocking because we knew they were going to say no to us. Uh, and it continued. So wait,
0: so you, you walk in, you we sit, sit at, at the, the lunch counter, counter, and you
2: say. May I have a hamburger and a Coke, please? And when, and they say. No.
1: They, Why are you here? Every kid asked for one.
2: Every kid asked for a hamburger and a coke, and we did that for three days, asking for a hamburger and a coke, and we're told that we shouldn't be there. People would tell us, you know, that we're shopping in cats. That what are you doing here? Why do you have these kids down here? Why don't you kids leave here? You know, you're putting these kids in jeopardy. You know, you're not supposed to be here.
1: Where, and so, Miss Looper, standing. Where was she? Where was she at?
2: Well, she was there. It's interesting that uh, she was there with us. Initially, the whole reason for using for children doing the sit-in also was the fact that uh, Jimmy Stewart, who was the president of the adult chapter, felt that when we went to them with the idea of doing this, it would be much easier and much safer for children to be the initial sit-iners and adults, mm-hmm. yeah. because yeah. for a variety of reasons, we even uh, had a situation where there were adults that didn't have the patience that when people started to curse them out or say nasty things and call them the n-word and a variety of other things that they just wanted to get up and kick butt right. but we knew that that would <laughs> circumvent the process in terms of what we were trying to accomplish right. so you send children in That's as right. young as my sister five and I'm seven uh, into this environment and people are not going to be quite as nasty they were nasty now I mean at one point over the seven years someone even tried to sick a monkey on me you know so it was a long process in terms of getting people to start changing their mind.
1: Miss Luke, the only adult chaperone, or were there other some, some other? Adults? Uh, those those first three days, I believe she was the only uh, adult. Thirteen kids. Yeah, with well,
2: thirteen and now,
0: kids. Right. And and how long? When you all each went to the counter and asked for? We a were no, we were not at the
2: counter. We were sitting at a lunch counter. Oh, yeah, we were okay. you were sitting down. You
0: were yes. sitting down um how long did you sit there
2: we sat there for hours hours yeah we sat there for hours um and we had books with us where we could read because you know people were saying nasty things and we didn't want to be distracted and and definitely not disrespectful we never said anything disrespectful to anyone because we knew that we would not be able to get the result that we wanted but this cats have separate restrooms all everybody had separate restrooms.
1: what, did you did you break that rule too at cats when no, somebody had no. to use the restroom or something? No, or we did we did not do that. We
2: would have to leave the 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 rest the uh, drugstore and go somewhere else and come back
1: and come back. Okay.
2: The, the, on the third day of doing this for three consistent days, uh, is when we went in and asked for a hamburger and a coke, and they said yes. Hmm. Um, why do you
0: think they said yes on the third? I day? think
2: what happened was cats' drugstore was owned. Uh, they had locations all in the Midwest, Arkansas and Missouri and Kansas, as well as here in Oklahoma, and I think you know at some point, like in anything in society, people start having this aha moment about maybe this makes sense mm. to be able to uh, let these children eat here, and so they ended up changing their entire corporate policy mm. and allowed people to eat in all their restaurants uh, that they owned in the Midwest. Wow! Now. For me, as I over the years when I've started to think about this and people have started to ask me questions, as you all are asking me today, you would think, okay, this is a major corporation. It's almost like Sonic saying, hey, we're going to let everybody eat. And so then McDonald's says, okay, we'll let them eat at our place. And Burger King said, that's cool. And, you know, Wendy's and on and on. But that did not happen. Major corporations said yes, and then for the next seven years, we went to many restaurants. Only It was only one restaurant, and I cannot remember the restaurant that said no. We were able to knock down the barriers in every restaurant from the time I was seven until I was 14.
0: And do you, off the, uh, do you, off the top of your head, remember some of those restaurants?
2: Oh, Anna Mods was one. Everybody remembers Animad because people got to be a little crazy. You know, sometimes uh, uh, restaurant owners start, as they would say, feeling themselves. You know, uh, they start to do things uh, that were not so kind. Uh, They start to allow their customers to do things that were not so kind. But Animad comes at the top of my uh, at the top of my list. Uh, just a regular restaurant. You could go restaurant. in, yeah. Some of the restaurants back during that time also were like the, the Golden Corrals that we have today. You mm-hmm. go through a line and get your food and sit down, but uh, Animage was one. And there were numerous restaurants. Interestingly enough, uh, as years passed, in the last couple of years, uh, the Weekly Reader, and many of, uh, people have read that magazine as children, they, want, they did a story on me, uh, first, second, third, and fourth grade magazine, maybe over five million kids read that magazine. And then they said, what we'd like to do, Mr. Nshuma, is come down to Oklahoma and take pictures and see the restaurants that you used to uh, go to. And I said, well, that sounds like a wonderful idea, but none of those restaurants are open today. Mm. Not one. I'm not sure whether over time the change in mindset, uh, and you know, the restaurant business is a tough business anyway, but none of the restaurants are open that were uh, around that, during that period of time.
0: I know, I'm sorry. I know we got to move on, but I'm just so fascinated by this. Um, I guess my next question would be, what did that do to you? What did that do for you, spending that kind of time, doing that kind of important work as a child? What was the next thing you did?
2: My, in my family, my, and maybe it may have started because of my grandfather, but at our house we always talked about what was going on in society. You know, most people don't even want to turn the TV on today, but we talked about things that were going on in society, and we talked about equity and equality. And so my, you know, my uh, grandfather always talked about the importance of education. Uh, back in the fifties, as you know, it was only. Several years before that, that we we could even go to uh, integrated schools. And so my grandfather always talked about, you know, get all the education you can get. That's one thing the white man can't take away from you. And he also reminded me, and and when I tell young people this, they look at me, what's she talking about? And he said, if you keep your dress tail down, you'll go a long way. And what that meant was you have to stay focused. You have to stay directed. You have to be committed to uh, your educational experience and and wanting to be somebody. And so um, he said that to me, my mother and father always said, you're just as good as anybody, but not better than anybody. And so hearing that all your life, Uh, became just a part of who I was, and like I said, uh, sitting in from 7 to 14, uh, and also being involved in NAACP Youth Council. One thing about the Youth Council was that it allowed us to uh, develop leadership skills, things that most people learn, and I'm sure Lieutenant Qubit and you as well uh, as, a, as, a, as a national leader, you're having to teach people. Now people spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars about team building and about uh, management and a variety of things. We learned all those things as a kid being involved in NAACP because I was the NAACP Youth Council uh president here in Oklahoma City and then I got elected to state president and I got elected to regional president. So all the things that most people learn as adults, I learned them as a kid. We learned how to do public speaking. We learned how to write. And having been... uh under the guidance of Mrs. Looper being a teacher, you know, learning about history and learning how to articulate your thoughts was at the top of our -hmm. our agenda. So all the things that I did that most kids did later, I never have gotten, (laughs) I learned as a kid. And so it, it, for me, taking all those skills and talents and tools and turning them into something, even as I went off to college, Uh, at OU, got involved in Black Student Union and did things down there, and then moving on to Washington, D.C. What did you major in at OU? I started out majoring in in political science. I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. Having watched, you know, Thurgood Marshall and learning about the legal system through that process, I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. So I thought that majoring in political science was a good thing to major in. However, I did two years at OU. And then I graduated from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I never will forget one of the first experiences at GW was uh, taking a course uh, in political science and me writing a paper on France Fanon. And I got the paper back and there was a C on the paper, not one comment from the professor, but just the, the grade C. And I thought to myself, okay, if you've got professors who are not even giving you a comment on a paper, and Franz Fanon, as you well know, was very controversial, uh, you may want to reconsider your major. And so I started, I had been taking sociology classes as electives, and I just even had this aha moment. If you want to get out of college, you may want to switch <laughs> over to sociology, which I did. And so I ended up easily switching over to sociology as a major. but. Uh, The connection with the France Fanon piece is that as an alumni at GW, probably about five to seven years ago, I went back to the university and was at the library and I walked in the in the library at the university and there was a long table, probably about over 12 feet long. Uh, with a big exhibition on France Fanon, all the books that had been written about France Fanon, papers that had been written about Franz Fanon, and so as I reflected, I said, "Wow, isn't it amazing how change comes about? It takes time." There I was in the early '70s going to GW, and now they're acknowledging the work and the life of France Fanon.
1: Mm, that's amazing. It was, it was amazing. It mm. was.
2: I kind of chuckled to myself. Well, ain't this something? Mm. Well, tell
1: me, tell me now. How do you use? How are you using your voice now, in in light of our current racial or post-racial? Someone to say what? How, do, how the way? What we're doing? How things are? How we're we having this conversation now about race? How, you you don't shy away from talking about your experience, but how are you able to stay in it with no bitterness? Uh, still able to bring other people into the conversation without the turmoil. You're having very rich conversations. You, a lot of people follow you for your book reading clips, which we can talk about well, in a l- little bit. L- let me but tell how you, are you doing this? What
2: happened was in 08, we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the sit-in movement. And uh, Julia Clifford, who I mentioned earlier, was having this, had had this conversation with her dad about what's one of the most memorable parts of his life. And he was a white guy from Boston, and in sitting down with Julia, he said being a part of the sit-in movement here in Oklahoma City was probably one of the most impactful things in his life. He had moved here from the East Coast to take uh, jobs when he was a young man in his 20s. And so Julia started having this conversation about, well, you know, I went to school. We all took Oklahoma history, but Ned read nothing in the history books about the sit-in movement in Oklahoma City. And she decided to do, to do a documentary. Right. And Julia called, interviewed me for the documentary, which became later called Children of the Civil Rights. When the film was almost ready, which was in 2014, Julia called me up and said, the was almost ready. I would like you to travel with me around the country to talk about your experiences in the sit-in movement. And I'm going to tell you, I was so honored when she asked me to do that. I mean, I couldn't believe that she wanted me you know to talk about my experience. There were, you know, of course, teenagers that could that had a vivid memory of that. That had more, I won't say more experiences, but were well, older. But when she asked me to do that, I was so excited. And I traveled around the country with Julia. People screening the film. We went to school systems. We went to universities. We went to museums, uh, screening the film and me talking about my experiences. And as the the more I talked to children. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Some people say, "How do ideas come to our brains?" Yes, we're creative individuals. Yes, we've got gone to college. Yes, I have some degrees. I even had gone to Howard University. You talk about that because we took a class called the uh, the Psychology of Racism by Doc. I remember him very vividly, Doctor uh But what I found myself doing was being able to tap into the young minds that I was speaking before, and I got to. Hear what children were thinking about uh, the sit-in movement, about history, about equality, about inequities in, in society, and how their parents had told them stories. And there we were in Rochester, New York. There were probably about three or 400 kids I was talking to. And I found myself saying, you know what, if I could sit in. From 7 to 14, then you guys should be able to do the same thing. And I'm going to create this national movement called I Have a Voice. Now, you know, Waylon and Cece, this is not something I've ever thought about in my life. I never thought about creating a movement for children or even encouraging children to let their own voices be heard. Not in that way. I mean, I lived in D.C. for 40 years. I mean, i had been involved in all kind of movements and, and women's organizations and had spoken on a variety of things, but it had never reflected on my time as a kid here in Oklahoma City. And so when I mentioned that to the kids, I started having kids come up to me afterwards saying, well, Mr. Shum, what's that going to look like? Can you tell me more about that? And I said, I really don't know right now, but all I know is that you guys have got to let your voices be heard. So I get back here to Oklahoma City. This is uh, 2014 uh, and 2015. Uh, Julia and I had even spoken, she uh, shown the film over in Tulsa, and all the ninth graders in the Tulsa public schools saw the film. Uh, for two years. Um, people were very excited about learning about Oklahoma history because no one knew about this history. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, not even the people in Greensboro, North Carolina had given us the due uh, for being able to launch this uh, this movement, as it were. And so I started trying to think about how could a movement for children come about? I can't, it's almost like starting to make some soup. You put some of the vegetables in and then you kind of sit it on the back burner but you don't really turn the fire on yet. Right, right. <laughs> and that's what happened with me. I started trying to think about what could happen. Well, the next year I get a like I said a, a email from the Weekly Reader people saying that we want to do a cover story on you initially it was the second graders and then they invited me to New York and it got to be the first second third and fourth grade magazine they did this cover story on me and that's when I began to talk about I have a voice now and the children started to say well Mrs. Juma we want to have the courage and the determination and the drive that you had as a kid to get involved and make a difference in society as a result of that me talking about it, I got about 25,000 letters from children all over the country saying they wanted to, to make a difference in the world. And it's kind of simmered there for a while. And then later, last year, I started talking about it more and more. And as CeCe will uh, attest to and was so gracious to host, uh, I said, you know what, I've got to start doing some listening sessions with children to see what this what they're thinking. Because really, I want the movement to be for children by children. And last year, uh, I called Cece up and I said, You know what? You've got a little one. I would love for you to host something so I can hear what the children are thinking. And so, the end of last year, she said, I'd be happy to. And she hosted something called Cookies and Conversation. And this was around the holiday time. And one of the things that was so important that we were taught in the sit in movement, as, a, as well as the background I got from my parents and grandparents, is it's not about you. It's the greatest good for the greatest number. Right. And it's about being of service to your community. Right. And so when I went to her house, it was right around Christmas time. And she said, you know what? I'm going to have the girls to make cookies. And so I said, that's a wonderful thing. So I get there and there's seven little girls. Black girls, white girls, girls from other countries, all smart as all get out. I mean, I have never seen children so smart. So they began to tell me things that were going on in their little world. And that was the beginning of an Oklahoma conversation.
0: Wow. Let me, I know that we are um, running out of time, but I, I tell you, I could listen to you like for half a day Um Talk about Only your Only half experience. a day? Probably, <laughs> right. probably longer, much longer <laughs> that than boy, that. Um, I can attest to the fact that these listening sessions are so powerful. The things that I observed the girls talk about um, as I was cleaning up the cooking mess. Wow. <laughs> um <laughs> The things I heard heard them say were so profound, and um, I really appreciated them having an opportunity, a focused opportunity to to talk about how to become engaged in the world around them. And I think there's so many people that want their kids to have that kind of experience and just don't know kind of
2: what to do. We're thinking, what can a five- and six-year-old kid know? They know more than you ever want to know, and we want their voices to we be can, heard.
1: We can learn so much from them. Tell us about your book club, your book so circle. So
2: we have, we host something. there's a whole separate thing that's called What Lies Between Us with Ayana Najuma. It is not a book club. It's okay. a conversational platform on social justice.
1: Okay, but you're and, reading a book. You're and always... what happened?
2: and the way that, the, the, the tagline for that is when people have knowledge, people can take action. There you go. And when you don't know anything, it's hard to make a decision or get involved in things. So every other Tuesday, uh, I have selected a book and we've had as many as 75 to 100 people come every other Tuesday to discuss books on eviction, to discuss books on opioid addiction, to discuss books on voter suppression, to discuss books on human trafficking, to discuss books on racism. We I chose two books uh, earlier this year. The room we, There was not even room to sit on the floor. The one book was Why to Be Less Stupid About Race, and the other book was White Fragility. And people were there wanting to have this conversation about race, which is, needless to say, the foundation of this podcast.
1: I want to ask you before we go, because we so appreciate it with so much we got to We have to cover. But if there's one book to leave our listeners with that, they must read oh, right now. You don't get to pick all of them because I know you got a bunch of them. Ah. you get to pick one book that they have to read right now that would bring them closer to a solution and if they're wrestling with this whole conversation of racism, which book would it be? Oh dear. The books are all very different.
2: I think the one I'm about why to, be, why to be less stupid about race, yep. maybe. Is that uh, the latest one?
1: Who no, that
2: that's, uh, I can't remember the author's name. But okay. it's called, what is it called? Why to be name? less stupid about race. How okay. to be less stupid, stupid about, about race. race. What okay. happened when I chose that book, We also had just read White Fragility, and the beauty of those two books is White Fragility was written by a Ph.D. professor that lived on the West Coast, a right. white woman. Why to Be Less Stupid About Race was written by a Ph.D. Uh, professor, both women that lived on the East Coast. And the so, let's room- read together. They no. They were one was one week two, and then two weeks later we read the other book, mm-hmm. and they were just the book. The, the rooms were jammed packed in terms of being able to talk about because white fragility was white right about white privilege, and the other book was trying to open your mind up to the to the dynamics of racism. Can we
1: have you come back and just talk about what we should learn from those books? I would be
2: happy to come back anytime that you, as a matter of fact, I would be happy to give you a list of the books that we're going to be reading going into the fall so that uh, your listening audience would be able to join us. Every Tuesday, every other Tuesday at Full Circle Books at 6.30. Full Circle Books is is at 1900 Northwest Expressway, right across the street from Penn Square Mall. Okay, and you meet every other Tuesday? Every other Tuesday. So we're going to be meeting this coming Tuesday. What time? At 6.30. We're there from 6.30 to about 8 o'clock. Every race... Every gender, every age is invited. We've had children as young as 12 and 13 to come because we also read a book around uh, the inequities of employment in terms of uh, money. And we also read a book about immigration. And a mom brought her 12-year-old child because he had read the book that we read, that we discussed. Um... My phone number, if anybody wants to call me. Oh, okay. Is that good? Yeah, if you want to. Uh, I always, and, and when I meet and speak to children, I always give them my phone number and my email address. Because I don't want any child to feel as though someone doesn't have their back. Okay. Because everybody doesn't have the benefit of a mom and a daddy. So you can always call me. And let me tell you, when I was up in Rochester, I got many, many, many texts from children asking me all kinds of questions. My number is 202 997 nine five two nine what's your email the email address is uh i'll give you i've got so many for the what lies between is what lies between us with ayana at gmail and then the other uh address for i have a voice now is a najuma at i have a voice now dot org
0: wonderful uh, Ian, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I, I I usually on podcasts have so much more to say, but I don't have anything to say. <laughs> I'm sorry was, that I
2: talked so long. <laughs> no, it
0: was, today was really about listening um, and everything you had to say was so fascinating and inspiring. So thank you so much for all that you've done for the community and for the work that you're doing now. And for our... Um, podcast listeners thank y'all for listening just like i was listening to
2: today thank you you for having me one of the things that i didn't you know i like i said i didn't even talk about this for 40 years when i lived in dc but once i got back home and once what happens is and you're a pastor and you deal with people uh counseling them, that you have to sometimes say to yourself uh, that it's not about me, it's about the greater good for the greater number. And I, every day I pray asking I God, that. how do you use me? How do you exactly want to use me today?
1: What we like to end with by saying here on United Voice, we like to always say we seek the common ground for common good. Until next time, we'll see you here in United Voice, Oklahoma. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks everybody.